The modus operandi of Christian extremism or Christian nationalism is deception. It deceives people into thinking it is either God or of God. This way it can get people to drop their defenses, making it capable of getting even the most devilish, inhumane messages and practices justified and legitimized. Because, hey, if God okayed it, why the hell not? Who cloned the church? It's hard to say when, as it happened rather gradually, but someone did indeed clone the church of Jesus. In the previous episode, we learned what Jesus actually intended for the church to be. So an important question for us now is, who or what cloned the church, and what did they distort the cloned church into? In scripture, the Antichrist is known as the lawless one, or spirit of lawlessness. The Antichrist is depicted several times throughout Scripture, in several prophecies, spanning roughly between 6th century BCE and 1st century CE. But here's an important observation. All Antichrist prophecies in Scripture are tied to the destruction or disrespect of the Jewish temple. When Jesus made his Antichrist prophecy, and when Paul and John referred to it in their own letters, they were altogether communicating with the mixed audience of both Jews and Gentiles. So if they were talking about or writing about the Jewish temple, it clearly would have meant something different to the Gentiles than the Jews. But the prophets were not trying to send a mixed message. It was one message to a diverse group. This had to have meant, especially in the Jesus and post-Christian eras, that the Jewish temple was being used as a metaphor for the church. If the Antichrist was then prophesied to seek world power via the church, then he would have to effectively corrupt the church from what Jesus intended. Instead of an ever-expanding, diverse society partaking in the one spirit of God, the Antichrist was going to make an anti-church, one that fought for exclusive rights at the expense of anyone who didn't meet their religious molds. Such an anti-church targets so-called religious deviants, and oppresses them legally, economically, and socially via inflammatory and violent political rhetoric, so that enforcement, vigilantes, and even everyday civilians are driven to treat them more harshly than the anti-church faction. One more little detail. All of the Antichrist predictions in Scripture prophesied literal dictators, including Antiochus IV Epiphanes, Pompey, Caligula, Titus, Domitian, and even possibly Nero. So what scripture was actually prophesying was that a dictator led by the spirit of lawlessness would be the one to corrupt the church, creating and diluting an anti-church, causing a great apostasy or falling away. What is currently happening to the evangelical church, per the reports of Russell Moore, Amanda Tyler, and even the Department of Homeland Security, is most fitting for the apostate anti-church. According to Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3-10, through 10, if the apostasy is happening, that means the Antichrist is rising to power, and the return of Christ, or the parousia as it is known in Scripture, is imminent upon the completion of the Antichrist's rise to power. Let's look at how dictators were able to corrupt a part of the church and then use their anti-church to target or destroy for power. 
praise. It's a little scary to think that the year of the second American insurrection, 2021, was the year fascism turned a century old, having been born of the Russian Revolution, which ended 1921. This observation comes from award-winning author Ruth Ben-Jiat. Quote, Fascism and the modern strongman emerged from the vortex of World War I, a conflict so catastrophic that many combatants felt no words could express its horrors. The first total war, so named for its erosion of civilian and military boundaries, caused a systemic shock. The Ottoman, Habsburg, German, and Russian empires all fell. Out of those five turbulent years and the Russian Revolution came fascism and communism. Both political systems were founded on a rejection of liberal democracy and the worship of male leaders who promised to harness the energies of modernity to create superior societies, end quote. Having sold fascism to the public as both subversive and conservative, Benito Mussolini was broadly appealing to the political right throughout most of his career. Mussolini's ability to stay in power depended largely upon how he garnered and maintained praise from the conservative party. Ben Giat continues, quote, Mussolini was ill-equipped for the rejection he faced during the end of 1942. Used to flattery and applause, he could not face the once-crowded waiting rooms of his office, now suddenly empty, gallant, immense. Losing sleep and plagued by an ulcer, Mussolini extricated himself from an impossible situation by applying the strongman's golden rule, do whatever is necessary to stay in power. On January 3, 1925, a day after the liberal leader Giorgio Amendola told the London Times that Mussolini was finished, the Italian leader announced the first fascist dictatorship, challenging Parliament to impeach him and declaring himself and his party to be above the law. I and I alone assume political, moral, and historical responsibility for all that has happened. If fascism has been a criminal association, I am the head of that criminal association. Gentlemen, Italy wants peace, quiet, work, and calm. We will give it by love if possible, or by force if necessary. End quote. But even after securing autocratic power, quote, Mussolini lacked one last guarantee of his survival, international legitimation and economic aid. In 1926, J.P. Morgan partner Thomas Lamont brokered a $100 million loan from the American government to the regime. Implicitly sanctioning Mussolini's power grab, the act started a century of U.S. support for right-wing authoritarian leaders, and the religious Christian right has been starry-eyed ever since. Power no thanks to Lamont, Adolf Hitler had a pathway to not only stall U.S. intervention into what would become World War II, but he could also further his own dark endeavors. Hitler sowed Nazist anti-U.S. propaganda directly into American mailboxes via congressional franking through Senator Ernest Lundeen of Minnesota in the 1930s. Per reporting from MSNBC anchor Rachel Maddow, what was known as the Virick Files as in anti-Semitic and German propaganda speeches written by Hitler spy and Nazi George S. Virick, was covered up briefly by widowed Norma Lundin days after her husband's sudden and mysterious death 
on a flight on August 31, 1940. With the help of the deciding vote of the majority of the Central Catholic Party, Hitler established the first concentration camps and the dreaded Holocaust was set in motion. The argument Hitler used to persuade them was, you guessed it, money. Power in paper form. In the same week the systematic killings got underway, Hitler made a promise to the majority Catholic Party to protect the interests of the Catholic Church. For his entire military political career, Hitler was hell-bent on rescuing Germany from its economic woes and possibly literally believed he was the one alone who could fix it. And the Catholic Party celebrated him for it. The fact that one of the darkest genocides in human history can be credited to the church tells me the church is not above the temptation for more power. Hitler knew that, he exploited that, and he won their vote for it. Perception Vladimir Putin is and has always been a collector of intel, per reporting from former intelligence official Malcolm Nance. It is his political niche and how he has been able to consolidate and retain power the way he has. It was mainly due to the efforts of Vladimir Lenin and Joseph Man of Steel Stalin, the Soviet Union obtained superpower status. Watching SU fall from that status resonated with Putin deeply. Putin directs his grievance, therefore, at the U.S., the modern superpower, and has always seen the U.S. as his biggest threat. As an intel specialist, Putin's main tactic for weakening the U.S. has always been via anti-U.S. propaganda from Russia. China is also a master propagandist against the U.S. as well, but no one has deeply fractured American politics quite as masterfully as Putin. Putin's strategy benefited from the prior effective strategies of Hitler and Mussolini. Putin has sown disinformation and Russian anti-American propaganda in the U.S. mainly via the religious right, especially since he garnered their admiration and praise for how he killed Chechen terrorists at the literal expense of the lives of his own citizens. At the end of two public showdowns with terrorists, Putin killed ten times more citizens than the terrorists did. And many conservative Republicans took their starry-eyed admiration right into the core of rightist politics and the heart of Washington, serving essentially as volunteer propagandists on Putin's behalf. Putin has infiltrated his primary Democratic competitor differently than the strongmen of old. As a modern strongman, Putin polarized the American political conversation so that instead of him having to use his own force on the U.S., he could simply turn America on itself. Because as an intel specialist, Putin has always known that as long as he could control Americans' perception of their own democracy versus his dictatorship, he could shadow control America. And now with two major American intel sources feeding from the palm of his hand, Elon Musk and Donald Trump, Putin has everything he needs to sit back, relax, and watch the great experiment fail. Twinning all of these dictators didn't do what they did to sway their enemies into becoming their best friends. No, they did this primarily to confuse. If you can't beat them, confuse them, is the best underdog strategy for fascist takeovers as democracy remains a globally popular polity. Especially rising dictators want to make sure their enemy is as distracted and hesitant to protect themselves from fascist takeovers as much as possible. 
The most efficient way for dictators to do this is not necessarily by confusing national leaders, but rather the national public opinion. Leaders have to operate by indisputable facts, but the public? Not so much. Facts are either this or that, but opinions can have varying degrees. If dictators are successful in confusing their enemy national public opinion by creating varied degrees of opinions on how much the dictator's propaganda ought to be praised, perceived, or how powerful it actually is, when national leaders need to garner support against the dictator, the national response will be split and stall. Not only split, but really splintered on both extremes, so no one can really come to a consensus on anything. Dictators know. Divided, we fall. Furthermore, this kind of disagreement or split must be so effective that it cannot be easily recognizable or feasibly resolved, because the confusion will not only muddle opinion, but eventually morals and values as well. And before you know it, good and evil, as obvious as they should be to distinguish, become nearly impossible to tell apart. Why? Because that's the point. As the spirit of lawlessness, it is most optimal for the Antichrist to carry out its intentions through dictators, as they must, at least by definition, bend the law whichever way possible to stay in power, including and up to violence or lethal force against anyone who would dare criticize or oppose him. When a dictator operates in the spirit or attitude of the Antichrist, he is driven to be both God and the devil in the sight of all. No wonder polls tend to be fairly split or divided regarding such dictators, like Trump, for instance. 50% swear he's heaven-sent, and 50% swear he's the devil incarnate. It isn't because either side is flatly wrong. It's because, at least according to the dictator in question, they are both absolutely right. Through one man, the Antichrist has rendered good and evil virtually indistinguishable, and it has done one hell of a job.